Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. For the next few podcasts, we wanted to give you a sneak peek into one of our membership mentorship meetings. During these monthly meetings, we answer questions and discuss relevant issues to today's BCBA. If you want to be on the next monthly membership call, become a member of the Behavior Resource. Okay, so another question we got um, in the chat, which is a great question because we teach this all the time, is how to teach a four-year-old to tolerate losing. Um, we do have a program for this and I will, we will make sure that it's available to the membership, but basically, um, you break it down, you break down those skills and you start with something that's much easier. So for example, um, can you start by teaching, you know, play a, play a simple game to like race to the wall and reinforce the person who loses. So start by reinforcing losing, you know, and just, um, they still get some sort of like external reinforcement. So whatever that is, it could be like, you know, a small edible or, or a toy or something like that and reinforce them for losing, you know, the loser wins. We change the rules of the game. It's not the per- first person who gets to the wall. It's the last person who gets the prize. Um, so start with that. Once they can do that with the criteria being like, you know, no challenging behavior or like define what tolerate means, right? Like they were calm, they didn't cry, they didn't scream, or maybe they have to say like good game or thanks for playing or that was fun or however you want to define it for that student. Once they can do that, then you can play that game now and switch it so that the first person to the wall wins. So there is a winner um, and they still they have to tolerate that. And then slowly you can introduce kind of the concept of winning and losing in neutral or non-preferred games or activities. So I wouldn't start with like their most, you know, most stressful game that they they love and they're obsessed with, but start with something that like they don't really care so much about, like a a non-preferred game or, um, you know, a simple card game or something like that. And then slowly build up the level of, what what is the preferred activity or the highest thing that's the hardest thing that it is for them to tolerate losing? Um, I have like we have a couple students who 
for years, it's a challenge. They, they need to be first in line. And we line up probably 10 times a day, right? And it's like constantly, they need to be first in line. If they are not first in line, then it's just the end of the world. Like it's pretty unfortunate. Um, so it's, it's almost to the point where like the students were starting to anticipate when lineup would happen and start to like, you know, make their way to the door like five minutes before lineup, 10 minutes. And it was just getting out of control. So kind of the way we got around that for some of the students was because it was so, so sensitive. uh, We couldn't just be like, okay, well, you just have to tolerate it. Sorry. You're just going to deal with being last in line. There's just a rotation of like who gets to be first in line and the kind of, there's no argument about that. Um, and then eventually starting to teach them to tolerate with things that are not that, you know, being first in line, but teaching them to tolerate losing in much lower stakes activities. But in the meantime, having there just be like, you know, it's whatever the paper says today. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, you know, like it's this, this client, he's also, um, you know, like he's, he, he struggles to tolerate when, for example, um, his sister is having more pancakes or when, um, you know, like someone is first to the door. So I think this will be very helpful. Um, and I wanted to ask another question. So um, this Monica, has- sorry, Monica, I'm going to cut you off for a second. Just yeah. a bit more information about that child. Yeah. Is he verbal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, and, he's, he's verbal, yeah. yeah. And he understands he everything? Like, he, okay. Um, I'm not sure if he's understanding everything, but he has... Uh, he yeah he has quite high um, language level yeah. okay you may want to write things down for him so you know for instance the first in line oh, thing that she, <laughs> oh good so the first in line thing that shira recommended you know yeah. i've had kids who i just honestly like we try yeah. and tolerate losing we try and tolerate all of that stuff and they yeah. can do it some of the time but it's still hard for them to keep it together all of the time mm-hmm. so if we prep them ahead of time so for instance mm-hmm. you know like one kiddo for instance you can say okay so you're the line leader on Thursday, but other days, other people need to be the line okay. leader. And you okay. can write that out on a piece of paper for mm-hmm. him so that he understands. Mm-hmm. Thursday is my turn, mm-hmm. but I need to be nice and let other people be line leaders as well. Okay. Um, yeah. you know, all else fails, you could make him the leader and get him to pick a yeah. name out of a hat to see who's the next line leader or something like that. Yeah, um, I can. You know, if, if he's not tolerating his sister having another pancake, you know, mm-hmm. right before he gets to breakfast, you could coach the parents to have just to write something down. So, you know, when mm-hmm. like Sally might have four pancakes today, or she might have two, it's okay mm-hmm. if she has four. Okay. Something okay, like you can that. try this. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask another question? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this client, uh, he was on one month break from therapy and um, because of the COVID and traveling, etc. And he has recently came back and this week the therapy started again, the therapy with him. And uh, I'm just supervising uh, twice per month. So like we live in the Middle East. So, you know, like it's, it's a bit different way of working because uh, it's not uh, re- uh, reimbursed by the insurance. Um, but what happened, so mom told the therapist that they went to the mall and uh, in the toilet of the mall, he started screaming that uh, she's not his mommy to the point that the security came. So he was asking her, uh, are, you his, are you his mom? And he was saying all the time like, that she's not my mommy, she's not my mommy. And in her, in her ID, it's like they have different family names, uh, because, um, like he took, uh, the family name after the father. 
So she had to drag him out of the mall. That was very, very oh. stressful for mom and really, you know, like uh, like difficult situation. Like she didn't know what to do. And it was like recent, like like he was a bit oppositional, but like since, um, you know, like he had this uh, one month break, like it, it escalated a lot. So yeah. like how how you know like I can I can deal with this um, oppositional behavior? What what I can recommend to parents because this is it's it's getting worse and worse. I mean probably it will be better since like we we started therapy again and he's getting back on track. But um, I don't know like what I could recommend to do in this sort of situation. I I was recently learning about uh, the calm count strategy. So I, I was thinking about this. It's from Steve Ward, but I don't know if you have any other suggestion that we could do because like once he's, he's um, uh, stressed, uh, he will be screaming and it's very, very difficult to calm himself down. Plus he's becoming more and more oppositional. Yeah. Like, do you think he was aware of the consequences of that type of reaction? I I don't think, I don't really think that he was, okay. he was aware. I don't think. He was just part of his anxiety response or his stress response. I don't know. I mean, I, I will speak to parents next week when I will meet them to, to, to know exactly like from mom's side, like what happened. Um, but like he's having this uh, like oppositional behavior. <laughs> Sometimes when he's with therapist, he's screaming, I want to see my mommy. And then he's telling mommy, not my mom. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I, I, I don't know, like it's, it must be related to the anxiety, but uh, about like maybe controlling the situation. But um, yeah, that's very. Yeah, that's, no, that's, that's a good, I was actually going to suggest that someone in the comments said yeah. uh, potentially getting um, like an ID that says, or sometimes they have bracelets, like a, like an alert bracelet that says like, mm-hmm. this individual has autism or whatever mm-hmm. the situation is so mm-hmm. that at least the people involved can see that it's, yeah. it, this mm-hmm. is not typical or this is not, you know, yeah, that the parent can have, mm-hmm. um, that can show that will a, that they're mm-hmm. the parent and be mm-hmm. that like, this is, you know, an individual, I don't know if they have autism or not, but yeah, yeah, so with some sort of diagnosis explaining why this might be happening. Just from a safety standpoint. Yeah. But, I mean, my heart goes out to the parents as well. Like I can't mm-hmm. even imagine being yeah. in their shoes. Right. Um, and I'm wondering in terms of the parents. So I guess number one, it just goes to show you that when he's in consistent therapy, you know, it's working, whatever you're doing, ABA is yeah. working. So how do we transfer that to the parents? So looking at function of behavior, you know, it's not always happening in sessions. Sometimes it is, but, you know, it's happening more and more with parents and it's happening when, you know, he's not engaged in sessions for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. So how do you get parents involved in sessions and how do you start coaching them? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's what you need to look at and also look at mm-hmm. parent stressors. And I know this is hard because this is kind of like yeah. not in the realm of ABA anymore, right? But it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a BCBA, you need to be a social worker worker, you need to be this, you need to be that, right? Um, But if there's somehow, you know, if parents can talk to somebody, if you can make sure that maybe they're seeing a therapist or can see a therapist or something, just in Mm -hmm. terms of like talking about this with some kind of support Mm -hmm. network, 
would be great. Um, Number two, seeing if you can get parents involved in your sessions somehow so that they Mm -hmm. can start to learn strategies um, and just even wording, like simple things that you guys do that parents may not be aware of, like first this, then this, um, or stating things simply instead of giving a whole long paragraph explanation. Or, you know, if he's yelling, I want to see mommy, you know, and your therapist's response is very neutral, like Mm -hmm. whatever that response is, seeing if they can start learning from it. Um, If he's acting differently because parents are in the session or parents can't view the sessions, um, maybe you get, you know, um, parent viewing. So you can set up an iPad in the session so that parents Mm -hmm. can, can, you know, view into the session. So it's not interrupting session, trying to think of these things, um, just Mm -hmm. in terms of trying parent support, parent coaching that Mm way. Have you looked into the potential function of this behavior? Like, is there a consistent trigger or antecedent with that? Um, I mean, it, typically when there are demands in place, I feel that at this time she was, mom was with him in, in the toilet. And uh, I mean, also I feel like counter control, like lots of things that, mm-hmm. you know, like are not under his control because uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's very oppositional. Mm-hmm. So I just feel there is a, like a big component of, you know, like having control over the situation and mm-hmm. that's, you know, like I, I'm deciding what, what we're doing, mm-hmm. what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. So then think about the replacement behaviors that, that you would want to teach him. And maybe that you can mm-hmm. focus on more, you know, in your sessions and with parents mm-hmm. and teaching parents how to do things like forced choice, which is a great strategy for kids who like mm-hmm. control. Um, sometimes it's about, not knowing the expectations. So like maybe if they're out and about, it's much more unpredictable. So it could be something mm-hmm. like giving him a schedule of what of what we're doing and where we're going and what the expectations are. Um, if it is some somewhat of like a stress response, like what what would you like him to do instead? You know, if he does get mm-hmm. overwhelmed or heightened, mm-hmm. um, teaching him an alternative to that. Um, any one of those things is like, what do you want him to be doing instead, right? Like looking at the mm-hmm. environment and saying, what's in it for him right now? What's the function and what can we replace it with? Um, and then teach him how to use that replacement. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a good idea. Thank you. It's a tough one. Or good luck. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Here's a question. Um, this person will be working with a kiddo who's about 10, 11 years old, um, you know, higher functioning. So milder, he can read, um, help with conversation skills, staying on topic, not obsessing about preferred interest and general focus when completing chores. Um, would certain parts of the AFLS be appropriate to use? Are there any social assessments that you suggest? Um, the AFLS is more for life skills. You could use some of the AFLS because, you know, a kid who's 10 and 11, you want to have that life skills component in. I'm always, whenever I'm doing programming, I'm always looking five to 10 years in the future. Um, so having that AFLS component and making sure that 10 and 11 year old can do some of those life skills, like they need to be independent when they're, you know, 15, 20 period. So yes, um, but probably not for the social piece that you're looking at. Um, Sure, you're a huge fan of the of um, peak. Um, peak is amazing. I don't know if that's exactly what you're looking for. The, what peak does is it looks at you know using relational frame theory and it teaches some of these pivotal skills in ways that it teaches kids how to learn. So it doesn't just teach them multiple targets, you know, just so that you can remember different targets, but it teaches them these skills that will allow them to learn new and novel targets in the future. Um, so it really is a lot 
for almost like academic skills. Um, it's great for social because it does include this concept of like perspective taking and understanding that different things have different meanings. So sometimes that's getting in the way of social skills because you know a child could be just so focused on what they see and what they observe and not being able to conceptualize what someone else could see and observe. So if that's the issue, then you know that could be a peak, a peak um something you target with that, but it doesn't sound like it would get to all of these skills that you were looking for, but possibly some of them. Has anyone seen this before? Socially Savvy? Yes. Um, It's a great book. Um, Socially Savvy is by uh, James Ellis and uh, Christine Almadia. Um, Someone has that. That's perfect. Um, It goes through, I don't know if you guys can see that, probably not, um, but it has an assessment at the, it's got a forward and it's got an assessment at the beginning of it. And then it goes into some programs and some lesson plans. Um, I love this book. I think it's really great. So that might be something and it's probably appropriate for a 10 year old. Um, So that's a good one. Socially savvy. Um, There's a few others as well. And I think we also have, you know, on the website, if you even know the skills that they're struggling with, like use some of those programs, like we have a conversation program, we have a talk on topic program, use some of those in like baseline, say like, is this something they're really struggling with, then let's probe it or baseline it. um, And, you know, start to teach it because this is something that they really need help on. And I think we have um, a social skills assessment there also for the intermediate learner. So it might be it might be helpful. Um, crafting connections is good too. I like social skill solutions. I've had that. Yeah. Um, those are both good as well. Um, the other thing I do, like Shira said, going back to our behavior resource, go look in the social section and go look in the intermediate and go look into the advanced conversation programs, like initiating conversation, like, can they use conversation starters to get into a conversation or do they start in the middle of a conversation? So I've had learners who come in and say, um, I eat steak for dinner. Like, you're like, what are you talking about? They're not saying, oh, guess what I did last night or blah, 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 blah. Um, So learning how to initiate conversation is huge um, with these learners. Also maintaining conversation and looking to see how other people um, maintain conversations, what they talk about. You know, are they making comments back and forth? Are they, you know, questioning, commenting back and forth, et cetera. Um, I've had certain kids who will drill me with questions and never make comments. Um, It's a way to teach them how to make comments. And, and not drill me with questions. Uh, you know, we had other kids who don't initiate at all and they'll take it all in and not say a word. So sometimes we have to teach that. Um, and other times, like I said, it's that initiation statements or talking about my day, guess what I did, guess who I saw, etc. So look at those programs on there. Mm-hmm. And there's so much out there with social skills. And I know this is like always such a common question that I see where like, what's the best social skills assessment, social skills curriculum, social skills assessment. And it's so hard to put everything thing individual is going to need socially into an assessment. And even then, you know, let's say they score really low on something on the assessment and in reality, it's not something they're ever even really going to need. Like, does it even matter? Right. So, so much about teaching social skills is, yeah, you need some sort of baseline. You need to have an idea of like, 
where they need to be. Um, but is it completely dependent on an assessment and a curriculum? It's probably not. It's probably more, you know, good clinical judgment and like looking at their environment and being able to say, well, you know, this, they said something really inappropriate a couple times a day. So, you know, I think that that's a priority. They really need to work on. It may not be on an assessment, but like, this is important because, you know, they may get in trouble. Um, you know, those kind of things or thinking about where their real deficits are um, and teaching to that versus like, you know, trying to check them off of a list on an assessment, because I think we sometimes get caught up with like, you know, well, the curriculum told me to teach this, so I'm just going to teach this, but it's not really something that's going to be as valuable socially, right? Social significance. That's one of our objectives. And it's difficult. Like you said, it doesn't relate in all environments, right? Um, You know, like I could have a social skills assessment and, you know, this kid's not filling in this box, but, you know, he lives in some rural area and he doesn't see X, Y, and Z all the time. So it's really not appropriate for him to be able to go into the store and, you know, navigate his way around and chat with employees, et cetera. Um, You know, I have another person who, you know, might live right downtown and goes to stores all the time. And it's very appropriate to go and, and chat. And I think I may have actually gotten those mixed up because I live downtown a big city and I never, ever chat with a grocery store person. But when I go to a small town, I'm chatting all the time. So again, it depends, right? Yeah, it totally is environment dependent. So that's, that's just, you know, your clinical judgment and knowing what's going to be and talking to parents and really seeing what their priorities are. Yeah, you bet. So yes, there's so many other ways to take data besides trial by trial. Um, I don't know if this is a factor, but sometimes the data collection starts with the IEP goals or the behavior goals or wherever those goals are coming from. And we mistakenly write all goals in 80% accuracy. And when you write a goal in percentage, you're almost tied to it being, you know, a trial by trial format. Um, So I recommend a lot of people to not get stuck to that 80% um, IEP goal writing or behavior goal writing because your data collection is not going to be manageable. So think about that when you're writing the goal and think about, you know, using language like some of the time, most of the time with one reminder, um, completely independently. And the reason we do that is because I really like doing rating scales. Um, And so I will take a skill where let's say it's, you know, attending at circle time and I might write, you know, five being attended completely independently four being, you know, needed one reminder, but for the most part sat appropriately three being needed a couple, however you want to define that. And then, Every day you just circle. How did they do? Was it a five or four, a three or two or a one? Right. Also, you're not getting trial by trial data on attending at circle time um, because you only do it once or twice a day. So you're not getting 10 opportunities. So think about the skill and what's going to make sense. I love rating scale. Um, probe data is another good one. Probe data, I find that it doesn't really show you any progress. And then you end up seeing a lot of no's. And then it just seems like, well, they're not really learning anything. Like it just looks like they're not learning because until they know it, you know, a hundred percent or, you know, that until they can get that, yes, you're not showing the progress. So it really depends on the learner. Um, it's really good for learners who learn, who learn quickly and who are able to show those skills without needing a lot of, um, you know, shaping and prompting up to work because you want to be able to see, you know, that they're making progress. So that's the kind of pros and cons with the, with the probe. Um, and the other things are depending on what the skill is, um, you know, things like permanent products, 
things like um, frequency or duration. So something that we might do is how long did it take them to complete this task Um, might be a good thing or how long can they, we do a lot of independent activity schedules, right? So like maybe the goal is that they can do an, an IES activity for five minutes, but we want them to do it for 20 minutes. So there's no trial by trial there. It's just duration, you know, right now they do five and then they're at eight and 10 and, and et cetera. So there's so many other options. Um, and it, again, it starts by how you're conceptualizing the goal. Like, what do you really want to see? What's going to be able to show you and the team progress, um, but not getting stuck to that percentage. And it doesn't, and not everything has to be a percentage of accuracy um, because it's not going to either be reflective of, of their skill. I um, When I address people at schools, I always ask the teacher as well. So, you know, you've got something in the back of your mind, like Shira said of like, okay, what, what do I want to measure and what do I want to see? Because it's not always 80%. I need to see yes or no, they're doing this or they're not, or it's time on task, or I need them to do it this many times during this time, or I need them to do it zero times. Um, what is it you want to see? But then I, you know, I go in with those ideas, but then I actually ask the person who's collecting the data what they want. And what's less cumbersome for them? So if it's the teacher or if it's the paraprofessional, you know, I'll say, listen, like, I understand you have a class of five needy students. So you have a class of 30 kids and you can't be collecting data. And as soon as I say that, they look at me and go, ah, you're right. Like, I can't be collecting data. You BCBAs, you give me too much data. I said, but listen, like, we need something to show progress. You know, is this easy for you? Or what can I do to make your life easy? If I give you a clicker, can you do that? Or if I were to give you a rating scale, can you do that? Look at this. What's the easiest for you? Um, and sometimes just asking them that and recognizing that their job is hard and they need something that's not cumbersome um, helps with that dialogue as well. We really enjoy talking to our members about questions that arise in their places of employment. It's so incredible to have such a supportive community to problem-solve practical ideas with. Next week, we'll give you one final sneak peek into our mentorship meetings. We will be discussing teaching communication to beginner learners, as well as ideas on how to teach students to tolerate their peers within a classroom environment. If you've enjoyed this discussion and want to join us live for future mentorship meetings, become a member of the Behavior Resource at howtoaba.com backslash join. That's howtoaba.com backslash join. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.